joining us today on Talks with T is none other than uh, Mustafa Koita. He's the CEO and founder of Koita Milk, my favorite oat milk <laughs> yeah. uh, of choice. Thanks for the uh, plug. Thank, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. No problem. My pleasure. So I want to start in the beginning. Um, tell me about your childhood. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but um, I had a pretty tough childhood, you know, when I was growing up. Uh, I grew up in sort of an upper middle class family in Chicago, um, was sort of on that path, you know, first generation Indian to like get good grades and go to a school and become like a doctor or an engineer like my peers. Or like the CEO, future CEO <laughs> of Google or Microsoft. That wasn't, that wasn't my path at the time. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I got sort of knocked off that path at an early age. And at the age of 13, uh, my mom passed away. And it was, it was a pretty traumatic experience for me. I mean, um, not only did she pass away, but I was in the house in the room while she was going through a brain aneurysm and sort of heard her final words. And, you know, she died in front of me. And as a 13 year old, that had a really big impact uh, on me. And just, it was like a tornado. You know, and, and instantly I was going from straight A's at school to D's and F's and um, getting into some I'm bad. I'm sorry to hear that, man. Yeah, I can't, no. I can't imagine what that's like. No, no, it was, it was, it was pretty tough back then. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to talk about it now, you know, now that I'm much older and wiser. But that, that really knocked me off my course, you know, of that typical first gen Indian kid, you know, who's going to be a doctor and whatnot. And, um, you know, it's interesting because we were talking earlier, but. I think one of the reasons that I've been successful is that I had a really tough childhood and I had to build thick skin and independence and learn how to deal with, you know, messed up situations in my personal life. And those same skills that I was dealing with, my emotions and everything when I was a kid, ended up helping me become a successful leader in my professional life later on. And, you know, I... I think that was a big deal. That was a big deal for me at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I want to, I want to rewind back a bit. I, I guess what was the inflection point? You know, you, you mentioned that there, you were on this, started going on this downward trajectory. Yeah. That's a good, when did it all change? When did it all change for you? Yeah. It's a good question. So, you know, I was going through this downward trajectory, you know, my grades sucked, you know, like I said, hanging out with the wrong crowd, Picking up bad habits, you know, at an early age. This is in Chicago? This is in, yeah, in Chicago. I was at Naperville North High School. Um, okay. And as an Indian... Do you, remember, do, you, do you remember the name of your English teacher? No, I don't, but I don't remember the name of my English it teacher. It would have been nice to give her a shout out. You yeah, know, I know. Anyways. <laughs> so um, I'm going to look it up now, you know. So, yeah. so it, you know, it's a really good question, Tarek, because... Um, what was happening is I was in this downward trajectory and my friends who had a normal, you know, they didn't have all this chaos going on in their life. They were on their upward trajectory, right? And they were getting good grades. And I remember in high school, they were applying to like MIT, Cornell, you know, uh, all these amazing school, Harvard and stuff like that. And my dad, who was a single parent at the time, was like worried, is this kid going to even get into college? Because I had barely had a 2.0, uh, which was just below a C, you know. 
And yeah. luckily, there was a state school in Chicago that had, um, they were uh, not very well known, but decent. It was called Northern Illinois University. I'm really proud of that school, by the way, now. They had a probationary program. So if kids like me had bad grades, they would let you in for a semester. And only if you got A's and B's would you stay in. So, you know, to your question about the inflection point, I barely got in, right? And the first semester, I worked my ass off because I was so scared that my Indian father, who had his friends, kids going to grade schools, would be, like, ashamed of me, you know, because, like, hey, you know, here's this kid. He barely got into an okay school and then flunked out. And so, so it's it's not the greatest reason, but it was a reason that you know sort of put the yeah. first log on my fire was peer pressure. You know, I didn't want to, yeah. in front of my friends' eyes, be a failure. You know, especially a, a yeah. basic thing, which is college. You know, you got did you make it into college if already not going to like an Ivy League school? And that yeah. started a whole in college. So many different things happened from that, and that's where I think a lot of my entrepreneurial skill is actually happening in college. Yeah. Yeah, I know you um, uh, founded uh, a fraternity, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, or led a fraternity. In, in yeah, college. yeah, yeah. So, so I think that was a symptom of this snowball effect that started. So, so what had happened is I got into NIU. Um, I was the first six months, I was like, you know, just trying to get my A's and B's. Yeah. And luckily, I, I, I did. I've always been very smart. But I never was applying myself because I was so caught up with that, you know, personal baggage. And yeah. so after I got through my probationary period, the six, first six months, I was like, oh, finally, you know, a breather. And then the second part of my life, the second part of the freshman year is I wanted to make friends. You know, I was kind of an outlier, didn't have a lot of friends in high school, like close friends, you know, and whatnot. And socially, I just I wanted friends, you know. And so what I did is I rushed. I went to all the fraternities the second semester, and it's called rushing. So you meet all the fraternities at NIU, and they're the biggest houses, most popular houses, the jocks, and then these guys. And I I went to like 12, 13 houses hoping that I could be like part of a community, and I got rejected at every single one of them. They all didn't give me what's called a bid. And, um, And I think that was sort of the second part of the second log that went on my fire is I said, you know what? if these guys aren't going to let me be part of their fraternity, then you know what? I'm going to start my own house, you know? Yeah. And so I was like, well, how do I do that? You know? And then I had a, I had a bunch of military guys at, uh, on yeah. my floor in my dorms and I had a bunch of rugby players on my floor Yeah. and they were super cool. And the fraternity system had hazing. It was a little clickish. And I was like, Hey guys, why don't we start our own house? You know, I was very friendly and I, you know, yeah. and, uh, I got, six six seven guys together and we um and we and we and we started our own house we made our own rules right and i was like wow this is so cool i got rejected but i can like i can create it was the first time i've i had the taste of creating my own destiny right and then we created that house and now it's a pretty successful house you know on campus that's amazing that's amazing so that was your your first foray into uh into entrepreneurship yeah it really was it really was our first foray um, and I guess, you know, looking back at it now, you know, how important was an experience like that early on in your life, um, kind of building something ground up and how much of that really kind of carried yeah, over? Everything, man, everything. Cause you know, I didn't learn a lot in classes, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I applied 
any of what I learned in classes. What I what I learned is the 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 life experiences is what I've applied really in business and entrepreneurship, like grit, persistence, um, and and so so for example, when we started the house, it was just six of us, and no one really knew us, right? Nobody knew about us. It was just kind of like when I started the Koida brand, nobody knew us. So I was. I learned how to be okay in a situation where nobody knew anything about us, right? And that, that's really the essence of entrepreneurship is not being afraid to start from ground zero, right? People are used to yeah. like, I joined a big company or, you know, this thing is already funded or, you know, I was like, there's nothing here. So, so, so that, was, that was one learning that I got out of it. And then I built confidence. You know, I was, I was very insecure when I was a kid. I was very shy. You know, I couldn't speak in front of people really well. And I, I think the fact that I started this from six guys and it went to 40 members in the course of three, four years. And then, then there's a second part. I then got into student government and ran for a political office in, in, in school. And, nice. and between those two experiences, I built confidence that I can get up in front of people. I can share my ideas and I, I can, I can, I can do things, you know, I can make, I yeah. can, I can create my own destiny. And that all happened in those, the fraternity and the student government experiences that I had in, in college. That's amazing. Um, I guess, you know, how thinking back on it, you know, you talk about lacking confidence growing up as a kid and all of a sudden these experiences helping you gain confidence, uh, those aren't kind of switches that happen overnight, right? And um, from my experience, a lot of entrepreneurs go through these phases of, of even, even when they're on the highest highs, go through these phases of self-doubt, you know, self-talk that isn't uh, super reinforcing. So I guess looking back or even today, you know, how, how do you balance that confidence with, sometimes that self-doubt that creeps up every now and then yeah you know that's a very very good question you know and it's the essence i think i think and what it gets to is self-confidence you know and what i've realized is that i think there is a viewpoint that hey people are just born confident or they get it or they inherit it you know like it's a gene or something and you know i was watching a ted talk in fact yesterday and someone said something and it really stuck with me. And I think self-confidence is a skill. And what's great about that statement is it means that anyone can create self-confidence, right? And that's, that's what you really need to like be that. a successful entrepreneur. And what I realized is I think it's based on, a, on one pretense, which is that if you think positive and you believe you can, you have a much higher probability of getting to that end result versus you thinking negative and believing, hey, I can't do it. So look, I'm a perfect example, right? I, did, I lacked yeah. self-confidence when I was younger. I still, and, and it's okay, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's normal. You shouldn't feel like because I'm insecure that that's a bad thing. I had to learn how to accept it and say, look, I'm just feeling insecure about this and that's okay. Yeah. But, but what I've done is I've started training my mind to say, yeah, I can do it, you know, and the best way of convincing myself that I can do it is to look at my past, right? And every single one of us, Tarek, you, you've had a journey. Uh, a lot yeah. of our, a lot of our entrepreneurial colleagues in, in the UAE and yeah. Dubai have gone through that. 
there's so many wins that we have that we, do, we, we overlook. Like, look, getting past my mother's death, um, getting into college, it, getting through probation, starting a fraternity. You know, these are all little wins. Getting up and working out, you know, uh, joining yoga, for example, and then sticking with it. They're all wins, right? And so I've started to learn that I need to pat myself on the back and recognize my wins. And that gives me confidence because I was like, look, I've won all these things, you know. Little Indian boy growing up uh, in, uh, in Chicago, um, <laughs> starts, a, starts a frat, um, goes into student government, and then I believe ends up in, in tech when yeah. kind of tech was, uh, was still in its infancy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, uh, I got out of college and um, through the starting of the fraternity, one of our alumni advisors who helped us start the house, you know, he was like a sponsor. Yeah. He, ha he had worked at a company called U.S. Robotics. And this was during the first dot-com boom. Um, and they were a really up-and-coming, kind of medium-sized company that was becoming larger. And basically I got into, you know, again, because I didn't have an Ivy League degree, realized I still had peer pressure coming out of school because my friends who went to Harvard were working at BCG, McKinsey. They were going into med school. Living their consulting life. Yeah, making six figures from Big day bucks, one. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm getting job offers for like 30000 you know, or yeah. a lot. And I had to move into my parents' house right after school. All my Indian friends, you know, first-gen Indians are getting the kick-ass job and getting married. And the daughters and the daughter's um, parents are looking at the boy and how much money he's making and is he from a broken family or not. So all this yeah. is going through my head. And I had my second phase of sort of peer pressure. So what it ended up making me do and I can only sort of realize this now, is I started taking risks because I always felt this need to catch up to my peers, yeah. you know, who, who, were, who were making that money. And I wanted to get the girl, you know, so I was trying to take risks to like catch up. So I ended up finding myself um, going into tech, which is a riskier industry maybe than some of the other ones. I was going for sales roles, right? Because sales yeah. roles had low base, they were risky, but if you were a great salesperson, you could make a lot of money and catch up, Yeah. right? And then I was also joining startups, so risky companies, and I was employee number four or five at two startups, right? And that was the... And this is, this is like in the 90s? Yeah, yeah. No, this is late, late 90s, early 2000, you know, around the okay. dot-com bubble, you know? So, so, so you're, you're, uh, you're an internet tech yeah. Startup OG. Yeah. And I'm, I moved to New York City, too, because I, I didn't feel comfortable in Chicago. Chicago is a, yeah. you know, it was a bit more conservative in its culture and thinking. And when I went to New York to visit my friends, I was like, wow, this is so open thinking and I like the energy. And so I was in New York for four years and that culture really rubbed off on my communication style. And yeah. I just liked the energy. So I, I was in two startups in New York City. And, and so to your question... That's what I, because of what happened in my past, that was getting me into the more riskier, cavalier sort of like positions. Um, and, I, and I'm so glad I did that because that, I learned so much in those environments. One of my startups that I joined as employee number four failed miserably. And I would mm -hmm. say to this day, watching that founder and how he raises money and how he ran the company and everything and 
was the best learning experience ever. You In know, what how, sense? Well, there was a lot of mistakes that were made. You know, he's a great guy, smart and all this, but, you know, he spent his money in probably the wrong ways. Um, he set up his team in probably the wrong ways. And I mean, in the middle of the company, he came to me and said, hey, Mustafa, could we cut your salary in half? And I was like, why? He's like, so the company can live another six months. And I was like, oh, my God, what, you know, how did this, how did we get into this situation? Yeah. You know? So, and that was just before I got engaged, right? So I was freaking out, yeah. freaking out as, yeah. as well, too. So I, I learned a lot through those experiences because I was taking risks and, and, and getting into the, and I was a tech guy, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, so you were in this kind of stage where you felt you had to take the risky, riskier opportunities because high risk, high reward. So if you wanted to catch yeah. up, that, that was your, your path? Exactly. And, and I'll tell you, the risk taking paid off, right? Because number one, there were two big takeaways I got from my early stage experience. Yeah. One is, you know, I, I got the employee number four, employee number five startup experience, right? I, yeah. I learned that, you know, you'd have to, I was, I was writing uh, artificial intelligent patents for a logistics startup, right? I was making my, I was making my own chair that got delivered by like Ikea. And I was, I was pitching the CEO of one of the partner companies and I was, you know, going and delivering, you know, samples of things on my scooter and you, uh, you know, that's startup life. You're doing sea level yeah. stuff and you're, you're, you're washing your own toilet at the same time. Yeah. Right? And so I got, yeah. I got some of that experience. The second experience is with the exception of the startups where I was in a, a software product management, product development, uh, uh, role, the other companies were all sales. I started inside. Yeah. I was, I was a, a salesman and I learned how to sell and, I learned, I learned a couple things about sales is that sales is the single most important skill you need in, as an entrepreneur. You're always selling something. The other thing that I learned about sales is sales is not sugarcoating. Pe people have this, um, people who are afraid of sales and people who are afraid of yeah. sales, people have this wrong impression, but sales is not bullshitting kind of your the way. Typical, the typical used car salesman. Yeah, it's perception. actually, it's actually the, exact opposite it, it, when you're talking yeah. about bigger more important things and i think that yeah. what i learned is that sales is all about reading a person and understanding if you provide value or not and if you don't yeah. walk away and so that gets to the third thing about sales is just don't bullshit anyone so you go from this uh uh big shot um tech <laughs> tech kid who uh was ceo and coffee boy at the same time yeah, yeah um and then you get into the corporate world yeah yeah so i uh had a very interesting professional career after my tech you know startup scene so um i got headhunted and interviewed um just before about nine months before 9 11 when i was living in new york city and I got recruited to a as an inside salesperson at a facial recognition company that was funded by DARPA or the U.S. Military Research and Development Arm uh, for you know a video that could recognize faces automatically. And I got into that company 
very high tech, very cool stuff. You know, working with the the military was really the research arm was so interesting. Met some of the most amazing scientists ever. Worked with a guy named Joseph Attic, who who who, had, who invented that facial recognition algorithm. Learned a lot from him, and uh, and and then nine eleven happened. You know, and I was in New York City, um, and I saw the first tower. You know, actually collapse. I used to live thirty blocks in, from there. Live, like in person. Yeah, you saw. Like... Yeah, I saw. I saw it. I saw the first tower collapse. I, I saw the first tower hit, and then I saw the sorry the second tower collapse. Um, and that was a, a life changing moment. Um, and you know, I was living just in Union Square at the time with two other roommates. Yeah. And what happened on my professional career is the company that I was with, all of a sudden, you know, facial recognition was the solution at airports. And that company just took off. And I, and I, and I took off with that company. And, mm. um, you know, again, kind of an interesting past, but then what happened is after our company took off, there was a, a guy named Bob Lapenta, who was an M&A guy in the defense business, used to work at Lockheed Martin. And he took, he had made a bunch of money and took the yeah. fingerprinting company, the facial recognition company, the eye scanning company, and merged them all into one. Um, and I was part of that merger. And then he put us in a room, all the salespeople from all three companies, and he's formed a board of directors on that on yeah. that company that was interesting. So it was George Tennant, the former head of the CIA, Louis oh, Free, wow. the former head of the FBI, Admiral James Loy, who used to run the National Guard. So very senior government people. And then he had the the people who were selling to the Middle East and India and all that from all three companies pitch. And I gave my presentation, the other two guys sales pitch, and then he loved mine the best, and then he put me in charge of the whole Middle East and Asia. And I was working, I got to work along, I got to connect and talk to like George and Louis Free and all these guys. And when you're I was running, first, uh, you're on a first name basis with at, George Tennant. At, at the time, at the time, I don't, I haven't been in touch with him for a while. I'm in, uh, in a slightly, he, do you do slide into his DMs? No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, spoke to him just a few times, but he introduced us to some of the, the movers and shakers in the Middle East when I was selling. Yeah. This, you know, I was helping the governments here set up their national security system. So all the border control systems, the e-gate systems, the fingerprinting systems in Saudi Arabia, I worked on those with the ministries uh, back then. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, as I'm listening, you listening here to you kind of talk, um, you know, something really stuck out. Uh, you know, you, you were talking about how much time you spend honing your sales skills, right? And this freak event happens, 9-11, and you're, you happen to be in the right place at the right time, right? With yeah. the right company. I mean, terrible time, but right time yeah. for the company. Um, and what you've done is you spent all these years honing your sales skills and leaning into developing those. And so what ends up happening when the opportunity arises and you're put on the spot to pitch, you end up being the best pitcher, the best salesperson. Uh, and so it's, it's crazy how life happens sometimes. Yeah. That yeah. You spend all this time kind of building the skill set, and then when it mattered most, 
at least at that point, you were able to lean into that and, and that really yeah. kind of put you in the forefront. Yeah, no, talk. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. What you say reminds me of that book, um, Atomic Habits, you know, by James Clear, yeah. where he talks about all these 1% events or learnings that you have during your life. And there's no such thing as luck, right? I mean, there's really, I mean, everyone's handed opportunities. Yeah, you get a, an opportunity here and there, but you're either ready at that point to capture it or you're not ready. And I, I feel like during my life, all those things that you highlighted so accurately, you know, when I had that chance, you know, I was ready, right? I was, I was more ready than the other guy who maybe hadn't, you know, taken advantage of all those learning opportunities. And yeah. so here I am, uh, yeah. you know, pitching. Sorry, Koita, I actually just, I, I just want to tell you one thing. I mean, you, you kind of um, made me reflect on one of my favorite quotes, uh, when you talked about when you said there's no such thing as, as luck, I, I, you know, I love this quote. I, I can't remember who, who said it, but it goes something like, I'm a great believer in luck. The heart, the harder I work, the more luck I have. Um, yeah, yeah. And, oh, that's and, a good one. And, and I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, you got this. Hey, you're so lucky you got this. And I'm like, it's, it isn't, it isn't luck. It's yeah. actually yeah. a culmination of a lot of 1%, you know, sweating it out when you were younger yeah. Um, yeah. so so you end up in the middle east uh, yeah f uh, on the national security agenda uh, exactly i'm sure there's exactly. a lot i'm sure there's a lot of things you know you could tell me but then you'd have to kill me so. <laughs> yeah no i mean that was a very different environment it yeah it did that 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 whole system brought you know I, I, they shifted me to london I was running the Middle East and Europe out of there. And then the Middle East got so important in terms of a revenue on my P&L. And then I, I told them, let, let me move to Dubai because why am I flying back and forth so much and this and that. So I shifted no. to Dubai about 15 years ago. Um, I was very, I was the most successful, I think, international salesperson in the history of the company. And that was, I was very proud of that because, because, you know, in the, it, when you're selling to government, agencies here and that, that and what they're doing it's all about building trust and credibility and following through on what you say because they know everything about you you know and and yeah and that i think that's really where i learned that you just got to keep it real you know and i and i was successful because i wasn't a salesperson i was just being an honest good person and authentic and authentic, being authentic you know mm. and um and that's that's very important in this part of the world because it's it's not about the contract. It's about your relationship and your reputation. Then um, uh, towards the end of my career at that company, I'd been there almost nine years, they got sold to someone else and all the people and leadership that I knew were moving on. So I ended up jumping and I, I got a job at Boeing on the defense side. And they liked me because I had all these great contacts and relationships and, they, and I was selling uh, I was working for a, their cyber warfare division, so we're we're, mm. we're we're selling, you know, all these security systems uh, to similar customer base, and that was good. Uh, the only thing about it is that you know I started feeling a little complacent at that point in my life. I was go I was just hitting my midlife crisis. You know, it was a lot of wine and cheese parties, flying first in business class all over the world, dealing with government yeah. leaders, and you know, but I just felt like I wasn't really. I wasn't excited. I wasn't being challenged yeah, as much anymore. Yeah. It was a very cush job, you know, making tons of money. And that's when I, there was a couple things that happened at that part of the 
career that just there was two three things that happened that triggered me into my into starting Coido. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm not gonna let you kind of jump jump to that point uh, so so easily. <laughs> I mean, listen, I I I know th I know the uh, I know that life, right? Um, similar to you, I was I was at GE and uh, uh, got to a point where I just felt complacent and. I just felt like, you know, the money wasn't worth subsidizing my drive. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I get that. Um, but that's a huge move, man. I mean, from first class, <laughs> being on the national defense agenda yeah. to an organic milk company. Um, yeah, a startup. A startup. Yeah, startup, yeah. startup. Yeah. Um, so where did the idea for Koita Milk come from? I mean, it's not a natural transition. I can't imagine you were sitting in some airport lounge and s <laughs> said, you know, this organic milk sucks. So tell us, tell us about it. So, so one, I never had the vision, you know, everyone's like, Hey, you got to have this vision and what's your four year plan, five year plan. And I didn't have any of that shit, man. It was really a process. Right, a step-by-step -step process. So the first thing that happened is, you know, I wanted to get out of my job. My, my, I felt like I was just a cog, you know, in, in, in the big wheel of things. And so I actually, at the end of the day, when I really peeled back the onion, I just wanted freedom, right? I wanted to be able to, to control my destiny. I wanted the ability to go after it and learn things that I wanted to learn, you know? And so I wanted to get off of the, the tap of my Chris salary, the drugs that were coming into my veins. And, yeah. and, you know, so I took my life savings and what I actually did is I just started a company and I got into food trading, right? I just wanted to trade. I knew, I knew I liked food because it wasn't cyclical, like defense or luxury or, you know, some things it was kind of right. like slow money, but also during a downturn, it was like, you know, either the same or sometimes more or a little bit less. And, 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 and I like the, I like healthy living. I, you know, I work out, I do my yoga, I'm big into healthy eating. So I was like, I want to be in food, but let me start with food training. So actually my first step was I just left my job. I got basically, I didn't, it, it was a little bit of, let's call it luck, but I was getting complacent and the new boss that came in was either going to fire me or I was going to quit. So at some point he's like, Mustafa, your head's out of it. You know, you got to start thinking about leaving. And that triggered me to say, God, I got to get out of here because I'm going to get fired mm -hmm. soon or I'm going to quit. And so yeah. I took my life savings and I started a food trading company and I started trading. I got a contract. And at and this point, at this point, you have uh, you have kids or you have family. Oh, yeah. I was scared, man, because yeah. I knew I had to leave my I was having in, the, in uh, you know, the mother of my children is having her third child for us at the time she mm -hmm. was like a, mm -hmm. a couple months pregnant and um i was scared i was really yeah. scared because I, was, I had to you know when you jump into the world of entrepreneurship it's okay to have conflicting feelings right and i, I was yeah. scared as hell and i was excited right but i was more scared yeah. than excited and i was like shit i gotta figure out a way to get out i gotta make some money third kids on the way I'm jumping into an industry that I've really not a lot of experience in. And I, I, I was scared. And so what I did is I just set up very small goals for me. I'm like, okay, let me start. Let me incorporate the company. Okay. Let me come up with the name. 
let me um, try and get $100,000 in sales selling anything. And I started getting to food mm -hmm. trading, you know, now that, and then when I figured out food trading, then I was like, okay, if I, I can do a couple trades, can I get into distribution and get the agency, you know, of a company? And so I started, so, so the transition, my real transition into entrepreneurship was a scary, but exciting one, you know, and I set up yeah. small, small goals for me and that's how I was able to transition into it. Yeah. Uh, scary, but exciting sounds like, uh, uh, every day in, in the life of an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're saying is slightly controversial. Um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on, like you said, what's your, what's your annual plan? Where's the company going? Um, especially when you're talking to, to investors. Um, but what you're saying is it's all about those, the small goals you set your, for yourself along the way. And, and that's really how you got started. Yeah. Yeah. I think, look, I mean, I think it depends on the stage of your company. You know, we're, a eight or nine year old company now. So I can build a three year plan because I have some data stability. I've got a track record, you know, I've, I've got a lot of learnings, but listen, when you're early stage, I don't agree with this academic approach that, in, and it's driven by investors, you know, those VCs and they're like, Hey, what's your three year plan? But look, come on. You know, I mean, I think, you know, there's a couple of my friends that are in the investment community and one of the smartest ones, you know, Amjad Ahmed, who's who's a guy who I think really knows his shit. He's always said, you know, don't, you know, you can't do 10 years, right? But a three-year plan is probably more realistic. You know, the numbers after that are, are kind of like, okay, I think I'm going to grow 25%. You just multiply it on top of that. Yeah. So like, so like, to, to, I guess what I want to say is that there's an academic approach and and I'm not saying it's, you know, there are exceptions to the rule, but I don't think you can look at it. And I'm looking at it from a, from a, a bottom up approach and it's yeah. very hard to forecast in the early days. It's hard to forecast six months out, you know? So yeah. I started planning and forecasting, you know, a quarter out, you know, and then as I grew and became more successful, I would go a year out and, you know, or mm -hmm. six months out and, and luckily, I didn't. Ha I, I haven't raised any equity to date, um, so I've never had to go. I've never. I've. I started small because I also didn't want to have to go raise equity. Right. I wanted to keep yeah. it whole. You know that may change in the future, but but so I didn't have to deal with the academic approach. I dealt with mm. the bottoms up approach and didn't need that three year vision plan. You know, I was like, let me let me get phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, listen, I, I think um I think you're you're absolutely right uh, in that uh, uh looking at the you know the next pro proximate objective, right? Looking at that next step um gives entrepreneurs the flexibility to also change direction. I think sometimes some of the pitfalls of having this plan I've seen uh entrepreneurs get into is this is the plan, I need to stick to it. And I think um, even when things aren't working. Um, no, no, actually, and, you know, Tarek, I think, and by yeah. the way, you as an entrepreneur, you, you, you know it inside out, but yeah, yeah. you know, you, if you're not ready to adapt and pivot on yeah. a dime, then you're dead, yeah. right? Cause if you, if you're sticking with your business plan in the face of, you know, 
cash flow negative or losses or challenges and you can't adapt and pivot, you're dead. You're dead. You have like adaptability, I think is the number one skill in today's day and age to be successful. You've got to be able to take your entire vision and throw it in the garbage and be like, hey, you know, this is where we need to go. And that's that's the one of the essences of, of true entrepreneurship. You said you made a decision not to raise uh, not to raise any money. Tell me more. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, we grew pretty fast, and there was a lot of working capital, you know, issues, and I it was difficult, you know, because you know I wanted the reason I didn't want to raise money is I wanted my freedom. You know, at the end of the day, I wanted it wasn't just financial freedom; it was like freedom to continue to have the biggest asset, which is agility. You know, not have to report to someone else or update someone else. I could move fast. And there were times where I was very tempted to say, hey, we need to take out some debt or we need to raise some equity. In fact, the Harvard Business School case study is about uh, a large company that wanted to acquire us. And then, you know, we didn't, we walked away from that deal. Um, and so, so it's always been about keeping the freedom. Now, as we've gotten bigger and now we're in the U.S. market, you know, my viewpoint is, 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 you know, I'm a bit more curious about maybe we do need more working capital, you know, through debt or yeah. do we take equity? So, but I'm really glad that I've kept it whole to this point. You know, I think it was worth it. Um, it was tough. You know, I lost some sleep. There were times where I thought the company was going to die, you know, cause one guy doesn't pay you, you know, it's a major cash flow constraint. Uh, but luckily, you know, we were able to, our partners, have been very supportive. Our customers have been very supportive with payment terms and and things like that. So so we we were able to to hustle and 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 sweat it out and and keep it whole to date. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, especially in the in the tech world, there's this perception that uh, the only way to start a company is is to raise equity or or to raise funding. Um, yeah. And one thing I love about your story, uh, albeit in a different industry, uh, is that you've kind of built Koita. You know, you're so cocky, you gave the company your name, but you know, besides, <laughs> besides that, um, you know, that you built it, you built it from the ground up, you know, uh, you built it from the ground up um, without raising any equity. And, yeah. um, and just kind of hearing you talk now, it sounds like, you're starting to kind of reconsider that. And, you know, one, one thing I, I, you know, look back on in my own entrepreneurial journey is um, really understanding the right time to raise funding uh, is critical. We've made a lot of mistakes in that uh, over the course of, uh, of the company and we've learned from that. But I, I think there's this perception that to just get started you need some money and yeah and i think uh, I, I think yeah. i think it's that's a that's you hit that's so correct is that's the perception i would say you know whether it's tech whether it's food food security you know or whatever there's a couple things that we've done that allowed us to stretch it out and and there's really two things that stand out you know that i would highlight to any upcoming entrepreneur to consider is number one I don't believe in the concept of go big or go home. You don't have to start on day one and be like, I want to be in 10 countries and I want to have 28 products. 
and I have to have the per perfect product from day one, right? I think one thing that you can do to lower your cash requirement is you can first say on the customer side, let's start with just one customer, right? Or two, let's focus on one city, not the whole country or two, three countries. And we don't have to have a whole full suite or a whole range of products. You know, we went against the grain and launched with just two products. You know, most people say you have to have at least three to five and a full range. I was like, why? You know, so we just started with two products. We did a lot of proprietary primary research and asked a lot of questions before we launched the products to make sure they were spot on. But on the customer side, we did that. On the supply side, or whether you have a software development company or a, a milk co-packer or something like that, we also said, look, hey, can we reduce our MOQs or can we reduce the amount of code that we have to do to just a proof of concept and not the full suite of everything? Instead of 10 different modules, let's just do one, right? Do one or two, or two products in our case. So then on the supply side, we reduced the amount of cash required and then we would launch, you know, yeah. new products into, so we're small supply chain, and very small focused customer base requires very little cash. And what happens actually is when you get that going, right, you learn a lot and you can make less expensive mistakes so that then when you go to five customers, you learn from the first one or two how to make it work. And when you expand your module to five or six different software modules or five or six different products, you've learned from the first instance, you know, how to, and so, and so, I guess what it comes down to is starting small is actually a wonderful thing and experimentation is so good. You know, put your put your foot out in the water and experiment. You don't have to jump into the whole lake, you know. Yeah. And the other thing that happens is then when you want to raise debt or recruit someone or raise equity, instead of starting with we've got nothing, let me raise, you've already got a proof of concept that's working. And essentially Coida and its first couple of years was a proof of concept. You know, we were, we were, we launched two products just in Dubai. We had two retailers. We had our our MOQs are very small, so the supplier didn't have to extend us a lot of credit because we were buying very small quantities from them. You know. Yeah. And uh, and that's how we got started. And then we just started slow. And next thing you know, we've got two products. We go to two, you know, almost thirty, and we're in just two retailers now. We're in ten countries. So we slowly built up. Yeah. You know, that, that, and, and every time we had the track record, the supplier was ready to extend us a little bit more credit. The customers mm -hmm. started working. They could, they were like, Hey man, can you give us better payment terms? They'd say, yeah, sure. But because they saw a track record. So you build off of a very small, it's like a snowball rolling down the hill, you know? And that's what I yeah. felt Koita, Koita was. Yeah. 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 I, I love what, you know, you kind of said, which is, um, to a certain extent, when you have a lot of money, you make expensive mistakes versus having less money, you get more scrappy and, and, and learn how to make oh, uh, yeah. cheap mistakes. Yeah. So I, I guess one thing I'd, I'd love to learn more about is, you know, looking back on it, how did you uh, manage having a family, kids growing up, and being an entrepreneur. It's not something I've done and it's something that scares the shit out of me. <laughs> Listen, man, it's a scary, scary thing. Um, 
I wasn't able to manage it in the way that I'd hoped. Okay, so listen. Okay. I mean, I mean to be very, you know, open and transparent about it. It definitely affected my marriage. You know, um, it definitely affected my time uh, with the kids. Um, and I, you know, unfortunately, when you're starting a company, you're bootstrapping it. You don't have funding. You're in a somewhat, you know, this is an emerging market startup, uh, is, you know, environment is tough, probably one of the toughest in the world. So, you know, people say, hey, you got to balance this and that. I mean, it all, again, like I said, there are exceptions to everything, but it's hard. Something's going to give, right? You've got your personal life, you've got your business, you've got your physical health. You know, you, you cannot, entrepreneurship is, I mean, I'll just tell you, it is not for the faint-hearted. You know, people yeah. watch a couple episodes of Shark Tank, they get some PR, they, you know, in the beginning and they think it's all fun and games. They watch the entrepreneur's Instagram and think they're, all, you know, it's a shit show. I mean, it is tough. There are days when you're, 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 you're redlining and working 22 hours a day. Yeah. Uh, you've got to keep your game face on when you're out of cash. You, you're crying. You know, it's just, it's the toughest thing I've ever been through. So I'll tell you, I've come out of it on top and I've won. But my family did take a toll. So, so in two ways, you know, I'm not married anymore. Uh, but luckily, I have a wonderful relationship uh, with, with uh, the mother of my children. And, and that's a great thing. And yeah. two, um, you know, I, I, I was not as actively participative in my kid's life for those couple early years. Now, they're the only ones that I want to hang out with. You know, now that I've been able to, and I, I can't say that entrepreneurship was the starting the company is the reason that I'm not married and the reason that I did, but I think it just triggered a lot of thoughts in my head. And I learned a lot of things about myself that made me, you know, do certain things. So, I, I mean, to answer the question, it's, you're not going to be able to balance it. You know, if you're yeah. really like, you know, if you're, you know, if your dad gives you $10 million and he, you know, there's no pressure to like, you know, the KPIs, you're probably going to have an easy life. You know, it's not going to be as, as take a toll, but, uh, the, the environment that I was in, you know, I, I'd wanted it to be a different way, but it didn't, you know, and it created some havoc, but, but look, after the dust settled, I'm in a much better place right now. I'm, a, you know, and, and, and I'm really happy with where things have landed and I think they had to, you know, and so, so my business life affected my personal life. Yeah. But I think where I ended up on both sides was, was the place I have eventually needed to be. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me feel really good, man. Um, telling me that, uh, I'm screwed <laughs> either way. Uh, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, that <laughs> I am just um, here to, no, here to motivate you in a little bit of yeah. tough love, buddy. A little bit yeah. of tough love, love, buddy. Yeah, hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> so no, listen, uh, I, I, I do have to say that, you know, my ex is now probably one of my best friends, you know, and I think that when you go through entrepreneurship, there's a lot of realization. And she's, she's amazing. I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for her. And, um, and I feel like I owe her, you know, for, for going through that difficult time with me. Um, and we're just, I think both of us are in such a good place and that, that's part, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship brings to the surface a lot of things in your business and personal life that you have to deal with, 
you know, and it's like I said, it's, it wasn't easy for me to talk about back in the days, but you know, I'm in a place now where I'm in a good place now where I, where I can. You get a call from Harvard. Yeah. 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 So that, so I didn't get a call actually. I was, you know, I'm part of, as you know, EO and we took a, and, and professor Linda Applegate came to Dubai and did an executive, like, you know, couple weekends, MBA, uh, course. And I was like the kid after class, I was asking Linda all these questions. And so the story based on how, how it all unfolded is basically Linda. So Linda Applegate is, or Professor Linda Applegate is the number two in charge of the program. She started the entrepreneurship program at Harvard, used to work in the White House. She's incredible, incredible energy. And she's like, who, who are you? You know, who's this guy? And I'm like, look, I started this milk company in the desert. And she's like, hey, hold on a second. You know, let's, let me tell me a little bit more about this. And I said, yeah, here's the brand. Here's what I did. I talked about, you know, the first six years or so at the time so of pitching. my company. Yeah, naturally, subtly pitching, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I was like, listen, I have on the dairy side, I compete with the $16 billion company. And on the non-dairy side, I compete with the... $40 billion company. And, you know, we've done pretty well for ourselves. We give them a run for their money. And she's like, listen, that's amazing. She met my entire team. And um, she's like, can we write a case study about you? And I was like, of course you can. This would be amazing, you know. So they sent a case study writer from Boston to fly over to the U.S., oh, uh, wow. to, the U to the UAE. They interviewed our entire management team. They invi and, and interviewed all of our customers, you know, the, the owners of the retailers in Saudi Arabia, you know, the, the management teams of the biggest retailers in the UAE are retailers in Singapore, Vietnam, everyone, and then our social media influencers. Because one of our things that we did is we got into the social media space before a lot of the FMCG companies did. And then they went back and they wrote the Coita Milk case study, which they teach in Boston every year now. And um, I'll tell you, one of the proudest moments was just before COVID, they invited me as sort of like the guest speaker and uh i i invited my kids and my ex to that um event to to be there with me and uh it was the first time ever that my daughter serena thought her dad was cool you know so here's my 15 year old finally she's like you know this guy is okay and it was really cool like you know all they they all read about my life in the case study and then they opened up a discussion what should mustafa do at this one inflection point and it was so cool to hear like 150 other students talking about, you know, what should happen. And they teach it every year now. Uh, so I have to thank Linda for, for, for taking interest and in sort of sponsoring the project. But that, that, was a, that, was a bit, that was one of the proudest moments in, you know, in my career. Did you end up uh, forwarding the case study to all your dad's friends and, you know, <laughs> all, 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 all those bankers and uh, consultants and doctors <laughs> from, from your All the, hater, the haters and the doubters? No, <laughs> not exactly. I'll tell you what did do it. This is probably my second biggest bragging point is this July when we launched in the United States. You know, my father doesn't really understand what I do here, right? Because we weren't really he in the he U.S. Thinks you're, he thinks you're a milkman. Yeah, he doesn't, because he doesn't see it, you know, and he's like, Mustafa, yeah. you know, unless I see, you know, what is this Koida, where are you, you know? So we launched in the U.S., right? And we, we're not in Chicago yet, right? But my father, every day, his whole life, his old school Indian father wakes up, opens up the Wall Street Journal and looks, reads the articles and all this kind of stuff. And so, so we actually, you know, had a great, um, you know, partner in the U.S., 
got an interview got interviewed by the Wall Street Journal because they took our products and they they taste tested our products with the billion dollar companies like you know Oatly and all this stuff, and they did a review and they loved the way our our milks tasted because we have this premium Italian you know taste, and so we were in the Wall Street Journal in July of this year, and my dad gets to open up the paper and he's like. There's Koita, his family name in the walls. And, and for an entrepreneur, you know, man, if you're yeah. in the WSJ is like the, the ultimate, you know, like yeah. th thing. And yeah. so I'm in the Wall Street Journal, full color, like almond milk is like right there. And, uh, and that, and that's, that was the, that was the thing I forwarded the most to all the, you know, the girls in high school that rejected me. And, you know, <laughs> I was like, Hey, look at this, you know, page number 18 in the, the section, <laughs> but that was super cool. That was super cool. I, 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 that was some shit that I definitely posted on my Instagram, you know, so it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. I mean, it's crazy how, no matter how old we get, um, having that moment where your parent is proud of you still feels like one of the best moments in the world. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. so yeah. I can, I can imagine how you felt for sure. No, it was good, you know, cause my, you know, my mom passed away. And my dad was a single father, you know, and then he, he remarried it and, you know, had some help with my stepmom. But, but, you know, he, my dad had a tough, my dad grew up in like a 200 square foot, you know, space in India. And he, he funded his way through school in the U.S. and he had a tough life. And I feel like I owe, I owe my father a son he could be proud of. You know, and I and I, and I felt like when I was in the W, especially after I almost didn't make it into college, and it was just you know, for for me that was a really proud moment. Like I, I felt so That's good. Amazing. I felt I felt so good that I could make him smile and you know brag to his other you know Indian dad friends and stuff like that. His his other Wall Street Journal readers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's beautiful, man. Uh, you, you know, that's a huge. Uh, you know, there's like this recurring theme, right? Uh, talking to you, it's these little moments where you've kind of um, just kind of perfected or continue to practice and perfect your art of selling. And then these little moments happen, these being in the right place at the right time. And here you are pitching to a Harvard professor. Uh, yeah. And next thing you know, you're, you're, you're a case study. So it's, it's beautiful. I love it. Thanks. Um, uh, one thing that, uh, uh, I read was how you guys grew Koita in the UAE, uh, at a grassroots level. Um, and obviously not having a ton of cash, uh, <laughs> probably had some, some role to play in oh, yeah. not having big budgets to, to spend on marketing. So I'd, I'd love to hear yeah. how you grew the brand and, you know, any yeah. advice you have for entrepreneurs uh, in terms of, of doing so. Yeah, listen, when we launched, we were broke-ass marketing budget. You know, you know, yeah. we had nothing, right? So, negative. Yeah, negative. I was like, well, you need to pay us to market with you, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and we were so goddamn broke. Um, and we had launched these two products, and we would go into retailers, and we'd be like, hey, can yeah. you list our products? And they're like, oh, great, fine. Mm -hmm. But like, we, they got to take... Yeah, they got to take something else off the shelf that's making money and put your stuff in. And they're like, where's your million dollar marketing budget? And we're like, uh, we're on Facebook. And, you know, back then <laughs> they didn't know what the hell Facebook was. They didn't know what that shit was. And and so 
So I was like, you know, I, I'll tell you what I've learned. You don't need any money to get the word out. You need hustle. Mm. And so I'll, I'll, I'll give an example of something that we did. Mm. Um, I had some really good social media, uh, you know, so I befriended the social media bloggers because they didn't have a lot. And they back then, they didn't even have rate cards. You know, they were doing mm. it. That business was just starting, right? So, mm. so I remember... Um, this is like 2014, 2013. Yeah, 2013, 2014, 2015. And I remember... um, But how did you kind of see that opportunity? How did you see this? Well, Like, how did you even get into the blogger community? Well, I think because I was young, tech savvy. I had a Facebook account at the time. And then eventually I got into Instagram a little later. But I knew that social media is where people were looking. You know, they they were looking less at the billboard that cost a quarter million dollars. And they were looking more at their Instagram, which was free. And so I saw that... I was part of that shift, I think, because I'm mm. very young at heart and always love, I love, you know, I really enjoy all that stuff. So um, I remember one of the social media mom bloggers, uh, Eddie, Edwina, um, she was such a cool, she's such a cool lady. And, and she's like, she actually kind of, her and I were sitting and talking and she'd yeah. done some stuff for us. And, um, we're trying to brainstorm what to do. And she's like, listen, why don't you just do these coffee mornings with moms? And I'm like, that sounds super cheesy. Come on, Eddie, what's going on with this? And, yeah. and then we talked through it and we're like, you know, this is kind of interesting. Let's, you know, get 10 moms that are like, you know, kind of cool moms and have a decent social circle and, and go to each of their houses or a coffee shop. We'll sponsor the coffee. We'll bring some sample bags and we'll just have them each invite eight to 10 moms and we'll just... I'll just come and I'll tell my entrepreneurship story. I'll tell them, I'll do a milk 101 class and why organic milk is better than conventional. And I'll ask them questions of what do they want to see in the future all within like 45 minutes, just straight from the heart, very honest and open. And we're like, yeah, let's do it, you know? So we took the chance and we, and Eddie helped arrange. And I met like our PR agency, Letitia Tronig and all these amazing people. And what happened was... This was like grassroots guerrilla marketing converging with social media with word of mouth all in the same shot. And I'll tell you what happened. It was the most beautiful thing that cost no money, really. Yeah. We would go. That mom would invite eight other moms. They'd hear my story. They'd fall in love with the whole story. And they, if they, and then they would pull out their phones and start taking videos and Instagrams. And each of them had about a thousand followers. Right or mm-hmm. some some of them had twenty or thirty thousand followers. They take selfies with me and with the milk and tag us, and um, I re- realized there was ten moms at each of them times ten coffee mornings over two months. So we had a, almost a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand targeted impressions, word of mouth, you know, and that just got the word out like this. And all of a sudden we were on fire, and the shit was just selling. We were stalking out left and right because those 150,000 moms yeah. were just going. They're like, oh, I met Mustafa and this and that. And oh, so, yeah. my friend met him. And, you know, word of mouth is the best. And, and so that conversions point, you know, really that 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 took us to the next level. And then I started befriending more social media folks because yeah. I couldn't afford it. And, you know, I met like whether it's Chris Fade or you know, all these, all these guys, you know, started coming and they, mm. and they, they started approaching us because mm. we're, we're a really authentic brand and we were good for them. 
you know. And so we built up a lot of partnerships, uh, Basmal Akraji in Saudi Arabia, you know, now we're, and now we're talking to like NFL players in the United States. We've got That's like, amazing. And, 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 and it's all been, I'll tell you with the social media scene, we don't really pay. Mm. We just build a relationship, you know, and we, mm. and, and we're, we're, you know, and we, we work with our, our, our bloggers and we let them do what they want. We don't ask them to sign any crazy contracts or, Hey, you got to do it. Keep it real. You know, you, if you like the product, then only post it, only post it the way that you like to, you know, and that's kind of, that's been a theme that we've had with our with our marketing policy, go, you know, going forward. That's a that's a crazy story, man. Um, and I, I love this idea of really having customers do the selling for you. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's especially in, in the tech world, it's there's a lot of lip service paid to customer centricity and, you know, be as close to the customer as possible. Um, and I, I don't think a lot of us do that extremely well uh, as entrepreneurs. So I, I love the story. I mean, uh, and the fact that you were able Thank to you. build a company on the back of that is, is kind of uh, telling. Um, and Thank it's you. a great takeaway for entrepreneurs. So you're running a company that has 30 brands, 10 countries growing. 30 products. No, I'm sorry, only 30, one brand. Sorry, 30, <laughs> 30, 30 products, my bad. Uh, 10 <laughs> countries. And um, what is being the CEO today of that company look like versus the company that you started in 2013. Yeah, it's such the job title or job the JD has yeah. trained changed so much, you know. So yeah. I think one thing that I've learned is that as we grow from startup to SME to now, you know, getting to something that's bigger than an SME, um, the skills that I need, uh, the thought process, like you don't have the luxury of strategy when you're starting out. You're putting out fires, right? Mm. And then once you put out enough fires, you get some breathing room. You can start looking out, you know, a quarter, then two quarters, and then a year, and then more than a year. And that's so I've learned that um, taking some time aside to develop strategy can can really save you a lot of money and time, right? If you if you if you put some and and, and again, it's unfair to ask someone to put a lot of effort into the strategy stuff early on because you're just getting started you know mm. so now i've been learning that strategy is really important the other thing is it's people i'm now managing people uh versus i was managing the business now i'm managing the people that are managing the business and i'm recruiting the business and i'll tell you my the core fundamental is i don't i believe that i work for my people right mm. i don't mm. i'm very empathetic i we've had very low attrition because there's, you know, there's no such, if there's anyone that's not performing well at the company, I look at it as it's my fault. You know, the buck stops with me, right? I, why didn't I train them well enough? Oh, their incentive program probably didn't motivate them enough. I didn't take into account that, you know, they were pregnant during this period and that, you know, we should have probably given them better benefits. You know, we should have. And so I've been learning along the way about how to manage and incentivize and how to love your people more. Uh, and I'll tell you, I think I, 
I had an innate skill set for that because I had such shitty bosses in my past. All right. I had some in my early, early career. I just had crap bosses. You know, uh, I had some really good bosses too, as well that really motivated me and pushed me. But I had some shitty ones. You know, like my first or second job out of out of college when I was at these, you know, um, you know, big companies. I, you know, so so I I learned from experience, and I'm like, I yeah. want to treat I want to treat people the way I want to be treated. The other thing is, you know, I I you know, I try and keep a very flat organization. You know, so I don't like a lot of layers. Um, we try and keep the political, you know, we're not very politically correct. We're dropping the F bomb. So I've kept the formality level very low on purpose you yeah. know, in the company. Yeah. So and it's kind of like a, we're like a tech company. We're really like a tech culture that's in the, in the FMCG space. And that's how we operate culturally, you know. Um, yeah. And I've recruited people that I'd like to hang out with, not necessarily that have the experience, but, you know, people that fit the culture. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, the kind of looking at people, managing people through the lens of the golden rule, right? Do unto others, you know, whatever the rule is, what you would, yeah. what you'd, what you do to, what you want others to do to you. And uh, I think that's that's super powerful. Um, and and I completely, uh, completely agree. You know, I I think one of the biggest challenges as you scale the company. Uh, the biggest challenge as you scale the company is is human capital management. I mean, that's the yeah. single biggest challenge. And so uh, entrepreneurs are going to make a ton of mistakes along the way. Um, but I agree. I think if there's one piece of advice I'd give entrepreneurs is treat people like people uh, at the end of the day. I think that's, that's what matters. People yeah. want to be heard. People want to be seen. And you know, treat them the way you'd, you'd want to be treated. Yeah. And I think, I think Tarek to that great point that you made is you should also realize that we're all just people. Right. And so, yeah. and, and this, this, this actually has to do with yourself as an entrepreneur. It's like, you know, everyone's mm -hmm. like, you got to have your gate. You're the leader of the company. You have to have your game face on. You always mm -hmm. have to be smiling. You always have to like, you know, don't show, fear or, you know, this and that. And what I've actually realized is that's such a crock of shit, right? Because mm -hmm. the most stressed out person in the organization is the entrepreneur at the, at the top mm -hmm. of the uh, top, mm -hmm. top of the mm -hmm. pyramid. And, and, you know, keeping it real, right. And, and it goes again, it goes against the fact of keeping your game face on when game you're struggling on, yeah. inside all the time. And so yeah. what I've realized is that I've learned to be vulnerable with my management team, not the whole company, but like yeah. if I'm, if I, if we have a shit cash flow situation or if I'm not feeling great about something or I'm feeling concerned about a partnership or I'm feeling insecure, I've started telling my management that, Hey, you know, I'm a little scared of this situation. I, I don't know if, and then they open up to me because when you're vulnerable with someone, they get vulnerable and it's created such a bond. I think in our management team that we're all just, there's no bullshit. We're like, Hey, you know, yeah. you know, and it just brings yeah. the formality level down and it's like, we're friends, you know, talking to each other and, yeah. and, and really good friends are vulnerable with each other. And we are so much more productive when we're like, Hey, I, you know, we've just opened this market. I'm scared. You know, I don't, yeah. I think I'm a little, I think we're a little bit in over our head. Maybe we should dial it back a little bit. And instead mm -hmm. of trying to do it next quarter, let's push it out two quarters or, I'm not ready for the strategy session. Let's mm. let's get our shit together and postpone it another month because I'm not ready. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And so we've we we've been that's that's one of the philosophies of that's our MO that I'm trying to permeate through the organization and I think it's been very successful. It's kind of this whole Brené Brown uh philosophy, yeah. right, which is vulnerability builds trust and trust is critical is a critical environment to have in place for people to be willing to take risks, right? I, I think you said something earlier in the conversation, which is um, experimentation and trying things during the journey is one of the most important things entrepreneurs do. And then I think at scale, when you get to that size of an organization, driving that down across the team and encouraging them to take big bets or to experiment or to try to do things differently is what takes the company forward, right? You you can no longer be the only person kind of singing that from the hilltops. So so I agree with you. I think I think vulnerability builds trust and then trust al- creates an environment where the team feels comfortable taking risks and that's what you need to continue to grow the company. So so I'm I'm all in on what you said. I'm I'm 100% uh, in alignment there. I heard you throughout the conversation today uh be authentic uh talking about, you know, uh, uh authenticity is kind of the key. Um I heard you challenge the status quo over and over and over again. <laughs> And and I heard you hone your skills uh, and be intentional about uh, uh, practicing to get better. And and within that, self confidence is a skill. And uh, I learned a lot from our conversation today. It's been uh, fun. It's been enlightening. Uh, where can people find you? Um, so obviously, uh, Koita Milk. Uh, at, uh, all, all the, all the big retailers. But where can yeah. they find you in, in the, uh, in the social space? Yeah, uh, so we're uh, I think on, you're on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, so our website is obviously koita.com. dot com, um, yeah. and then on Instagram it's koita foods, k o i t a foods, um, and you know, like I said, we're in about ten countries. Uh, we, we're very strong online, so please follow us on Instagram if you want to keep in touch with us. Amazing. Koita, it's been a pleasure. Thanks yeah. all for your time. And uh, I can't wait to have another conversation with you. Absolutely. Hey, thanks a lot, Tarek. Really appreciate it.